reading verses 60 through 71. On hearing it, many of Jesus' disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now remember, Jesus has been giving what we might call his bread of life uh, sermon. He's fed the 5,000. He's talked about himself as the bread of life and, and the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is what they've heard. And they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. May God bless our understanding, the reading of this is holy word. Amen. One of the things that pastors constantly face is the pressure to have bigger churches. Because the thinking, though it's not always stated, but it's assumed in kind of nonverbal ways sometimes, is that the bigger the church, the better. Numbers obviously mean something is a better thing. And it's assumed that the better pastors have the largest churches. So if you can make a bigger church, if you can get lots of people, then you realize the ultimate in church ministry. Sit in on conversations with pastors, and when they're asked about their church or how their church is doing, they will define their church not by how much love exists in that congregation or by how many people their church is sent out in the mission field to serve others or even by how they minister or give or help to the poor. It will be how many people go to their church, how many members do they have. Happens almost every time in those conversations. Advertisements for the latest programs, Promising Church, Growth from 100 to 1,000 in a matter of months comes across our desks. Eugene Peterson rightfully called this church pornography. For we're tempted with airbrushed images of churches that appear to be wonderful because they're large. All the problems, all the conflicts, all the traps, and every church has some problems. They're swept under the rug. A big smile is put on for everybody. We're told this is what you want to be. This is how you need to be. Look like this. At church conferences, most of the speakers are from the mega churches, churches of thousands, tens of thousands of people. I have never been to a conference yet where 
they introduce as the main speaker, 63-year-old, balding, Pastor Fred Klimkowski of 30-member First Presbyterian Church in Wagatoon, South Dakota. Now, Pastor Klimkowski may have an incredible prayer life. And he may have built bridges to people that are just unbelievable. And he may have brought many into the kingdom, but they're not going to invite him to speak. Instead, they bring out Pastor Star Manchester. Tall, fit, young. He's not even a pastor. They call him a ministry artist. Who started a church in his garage and it grew to 7,000 members in two months with no advertising. Grew up in Redondo Beach, California. Did an internship under a U.S. senator. Has a lovely wife, seven kids that smile all the time. Preaches from his iPad. He must know something about what we all need to know. The articles in the magazines and all the books, they're written by the large church pastors. Those are the biggest churches. Tens of thousands of people attend their church. They must know more. They must be able to say something that others can't. By the way, I'd like to announce my new book contract this week. The book will be entitled The uh, Cynical Pastor. <laughs> now, before you accuse me of sour grapes, because Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church isn't 12,000 members, you can accuse me of cynicism, but not of sour grapes. I just want to say, you know, churches come in all sizes. And there's nothing wrong with mega churches or big churches. Many churches of thousands and tens of thousands of people are doing just amazing and inspirational and wonderful things for the kingdom of God. And I have been blessed personally uh, by many of those pastors and many of those churches and I receive from them. But there's also not anything wrong with a small or a medium-sized church. We aren't of any less value in the eyes of God or in the heart of God because of our sides or in the purposes of God. All things is to their proportion. There are churches that are small because they're inbred, they are negligent in what a church should be, and they have given no room for the Holy Spirit to move. There are churches that are big and large because they have a dynamic witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are also churches that are humongous because they're really more about entertainment and marketing than anything else. They're full of flash and splash, and flash and splash sells in this country. And you know what? There are churches that aren't so large because that is exactly how God created them and intends them to be. And they are incredibly faithful to the gospel, often doing things that are hard, that are gutsy, and that are right in line with the heart and the example of Jesus Christ. Do you know that most churches in this country, in the United States of America, most churches Almost all churches are 200 members or less. That is the average size of churches in this country. Mega churches or even large churches are not, no, they're nowhere near the norm. Well, as for Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church, we are what we are. I know pastors whose number one focus and goal is getting more people, regardless of what those people end up to be or even if they worship Jesus. They just want more numbers. Hey, I'd be concerned if next week only 25 people show up. But I don't think we need to be 2,000 people in two months either. 
Growth has to do with a lot of different things. And if God wants a place to grow, he can make that happen. Now, that's not a cop-out for a church then just coasting and saying, well, we'll just grow if God wants us to grow. But there's much, much more to a church than just how many people come. Nowhere does God say anywhere in the Bible that the size of a church is what makes it valuable. Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian Danish philosopher, said, the larger the crowd, the less the truth. Now, my big point I'm trying to make is that we assume that bigger is better, that more people mean more truth, more spiritual power. Well, then why didn't Jesus operate like that? Because he didn't. In fact, he operated almost in exactly the opposite way. It says that when many disciples heard Jesus' bread sermon, where he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. When they heard this, they found it almost impossible to accept. You have to admit, sounds a little cannibalistic, a little strange. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's shocking. There are a lot of things that Jesus says that I don't always understand. I don't get totally. Um, This is one of them sometimes. Instead of saying, I reject that, or Jesus was wrong, or throw it out, I take the stance that I still need to grow in wisdom, in maturity, in spiritual insight to understand exactly what Jesus was getting at. The shortcoming is on my end. It's not on his end. Now remember, Jesus had more disciples than just the 12. He had a large group of disciples. Could have been in the hundreds. We don't know. A disciple is merely a follower, a student. And Jesus had many of these. But then he had that intimate core of the 12 who he kind of kept close to him and who he called apostles, later made them apostles. And Jesus knew that what he was saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood was offensive to many of his followers, even though he was speaking more spiritually than literally. He then asked them, would you be offended if you saw the Son of Man, if you saw me ascend to where I was before, implying I've come from God. That's where I was before. I'm divine. And when he says that the Spirit gives life, not human flesh, not human willpower, no one can really live and make it with God on their own. You need more than just yourself. And he called out some of those who'd been following them. He called out them and he said, because he knew there was a significant group that didn't buy into what he said, didn't buy into what he was doing. And he knew that Judas was one of those 12 who was going to betray him. He knew it. And he topped it off by saying, no one can come to the Father unless, no one can come to me, he says, unless the Father enables that person to do it. We cannot come to, we cannot believe in, we cannot have a relationship with Jesus unless the Father makes it happen for us. Chapter 1, John wrote that to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who are born not of natural descent, not of human decision or human will, but born by the sole power of God. And it says that after Jesus said these things, many, many disciples turned on him and no longer followed him. They left Jesus. They didn't want to have anything more 
to do with him. Jesus lost numbers. The crowd begins to dwindle. I think we learn from this that sometimes Jesus' gospel, if it is truly and fully laid out, sometimes it loses people, even those whom we might have thought were real Christians. Jesus said, some people will not be able to stay with me. He said this a couple of different times. Remember the parable of the soils? parable of the farmer who has the seed and he goes and throws it around which is the, the seed which is the word of God and Jesus says some of that the word of God is not going to take in people's lives it's not going to grow well why not he says one sometimes the, the evil one comes and he snatches it away before it has a chance to really get anywhere with someone and he says sometimes people face trouble and persecution and fall away from me it's just too hard to follow Jesus they, or they don't like the fact that Jesus didn't spare them from trouble Some people have so many worries about this life and they're so concerned about wealth and their need for possessions that the message just gets choked out of their life. Jesus just gets choked out of their life. Jesus said, there are a lot of reasons that people can't accept me or the message that I bring. Jesus predicted this. He said, a time would come when many will turn away from the faith. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many of Jesus' disciples turned and no longer followed him. It's an interesting phrase in the original biblical Greek, actually. It says this, that many of his disciples came out from behind him. Many of his disciples came out from behind him and never walked around with him again. That's what it literally says. The proper positioning of the disciple of Jesus is behind Jesus. Not in front of him not on top of him, not beside him. We are behind his lordship. He leads, we follow. He speaks, we obey. If Jesus is Lord, we don't pick and choose what we will take and what we will not take of what he says and what he does. Dale Bruner calls the phrase and never walked around with him again. Seven of the saddest words in the New Testament. Imagine the loss of excitement, significance, fellowship, purpose, meaning, life, and most tragically of all, the loss of Jesus. He says the first recorded result of Jesus' bread sermon is a massive loss of disciples. Is that what the church, too, can sometimes expect from hearing Jesus' word, passing it on, telling the truth about him, and being faithful to him? Our text says... Yes, failure is often enough the first fruit of faithfulness. I would also say that just because someone stops following Jesus doesn't mean they do that forever. And there are people who do a double turn. They walk away from Jesus only to come back to him. I mean, the 12 are certainly going to do that. They're going to abandon Jesus when it gets too dangerous and the cost becomes just too life-threatening. But they'll come back. Jesus will take them back. And maybe this happens in small ways to all of us in some time or another. But, you know, God is patient. And the Holy Spirit convicts hearts of our need for Christ. And Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is always out looking for those who belong to Him. He's always roaming the hills, searching for those who are lost. 
heart of the gospel is that there is always the opportunity for repentance, for reconciliation, for restoration with God, no matter where we are. The turning away need not be permanent. But for many people, Jesus is just a disappointment. What causes people to be offended at Jesus and not follow him or even stop following him? Does Jesus offend us? Is he too narrow-minded? Too uh, limiting in his teaching? Are we offended that he thinks, you know what, we're sinful, we're evil, and we need forgiveness? Are we offended by his clear speaking about how he wants us to live in terms of relationships, possessions, the priorities of our lives? Are we offended that he claimed to be the only way to God and that the Father is the only one who can draw people to Jesus and that it isn't so much about us as we would like to think? Are we offended that he loved, he opened a way for people who thought, thought not to be so religious, so spiritual, and on the outside, and who haven't seemed to earn their way, and, and they don't even seem to be particularly good. And he accepted them. Are we offended that he says the path of following him, it does cost, and that we must die to ourselves, and that it isn't a rosy path of self-fulfillment and self-actualization? Are we offended that Jesus insists we pray, thy will be done instead of my will be done? Does it offend us that he's Lord? And that we must follow and love and forgive those who cause us pain. The nature of the Christian gospel itself can just be offensive and a shock to our conventional way of thinking. Christ will not adjust his message for it to be easier or for it to be more palatable to our tastes. The message that the one true God has acted definitively in the life and the death of a crucified Jew who was the one and only son of God is offensive. And it can't be softened. When many turned back, Jesus didn't seem to be concerned. You know, he didn't call them back and say, oh, wait, you didn't like that? Uh, Let me change it. This is, let me say this. And he didn't say to the 12, hey, go out and try to get them back. I'll I'll change the whole message. We can can change this whole thing. I didn't really mean what I said just a while ago about that flesh and blood thing. I, I, I think I went overboard. He didn't soften his message. He let him walk. Apparently, he wasn't all that concerned with numbers. He didn't need a big church. Jesus was less interested in being popular than being faithful to the truth. Philip Yancey, the author, has some really interesting insight into what happens in John chapter 6 when he says, the feeding of the 5,000 illustrates why Jesus with all the supernatural powers at his command, showed such ambivalence toward miracles. They attracted crowds and applause, yes, but rarely encouraged repentance and long-term faith. He was bringing a hard message of obedience and sacrifice, not a sideshow for gawkers and sensation seekers. And from that day on, Jesus' teaching had a different twist. He began to talk much more openly about his death. In the words of Robert Capon, the Messiah was not going to save the world by miraculous band-aid interventions, a storm calmed here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured back down the road. Rather, he was going to save the world by means of a deeper, darker, 
left-handed mystery at the center of which lay his own death, the cross. Jesus is losing disciples. Numbers are down. People are defecting. And so he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to leave too? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe you're the Holy One of God. That's the question. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter says, the alternatives are not good. Who's better and truer than you? Boy, it took big trust to keep on with Jesus. It took big trust now to be the minority and to walk with him when others are turning away, and it still does today. Many felt they could find a better way. Jesus was not one big popularity show. He didn't live only for the crowds. After all, he died alone. Every human being trusts in someone or something. Every human being trusts in someone or something. But I ask you, who is more reliable? Who is more trustworthy in all of world history than Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified and risen? I would like to know who or what that is. In the meantime, I'm going to keep following Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, for those who seek to follow you and continue to follow you, we thank you for your patience with us and we ask you to help us along the way to acknowledge you as the Holy One of God, greater than ourselves, greater than our time, greater than our wealth, greater than our deep hunger for money or popularity or anything else, that you have the words of life and that you give us life. Help us to follow. Amen.